This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. President-elect Donald Trump says he'll soon announce his pick for the Supreme Court. Justice Antonin Scalia died in February, leaving a vacancy. During the election, Trump released the names of 21 prospective nominees, and three are from Colorado. Let's hear about them from Rebecca Love Corliss. Justice Corliss sat on the Colorado Supreme Court before founding the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System at the University of Denver. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. This list came from the Trump-Pence campaign back in September, and it includes Timothy Timkovich, chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, Neil Gorsuch from that same court, and Allison Ide of the Colorado Supreme Court, again, on which you used to sit. How well do you know each of them? I know all three of them. They're all friends. And I've never sat with any of them. Uh, Justice Ide actually replaced me on the Colorado Supreme Court. So we've never judged together, but I know them all pretty well. And you're familiar with their records. So we'll go through uh, some of those now. Allison Ide, uh, as you say, who followed you on the Colorado Supreme Court, what would you say about her? Justice Ide is a Westerner. She grew up in Washington State. She went to Stanford. She went to the University of Chicago. Ultimately, she clerked for Clarence Thomas on the United States Supreme Court. She came back to Colorado. She litigated for a while with Arnold and Porter. She taught at CU. And then she also served for a short period of time in the Attorney General's office in Colorado before she was appointed to the court. That was in 2006 by Bill Owens, I think. It was indeed. The Republican governor. It was indeed. She has been on the court, therefore, for about 11 years. Her judicial performance evaluation ratings, which we look to in Colorado as some indication of whether someone is doing a good job, are stellar. She is perceived well by the bar and by other judges around the state. She's very learned. She's thoughtful. She writes well. She is uh, succinct. She's not a justice who waxes on and on. And in general, I would tell you that everything I know about her would suggest that uh, she's a superb justice. Um, And from a personal perspective, she's also a really nice person. A nice person. Uh, Can you give us an example of a decision that Allison Ide has made, perhaps that stands out? I would suspect that the decision that will be called out as an indication of her political ideology, Mm -hmm. and we're going to get to questions about whether that's an appropriate measure of a judge or justice uh, in a few minutes, but I would suspect that it is the decision that she wrote regarding control of guns on the University of Colorado campus. Um, She wrote a decision striking down a ban on licensed concealed handguns at CU. And I would imagine uh, that that would be used as a talisman for some sort of political ideology surrounding the Second Amendment. I would suggest that her jurisprudence is is much broader than that. Let's move on to Tim Timkovich, Chief Judge of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. This covers Colorado, five other Western and Midwestern states. What did Timkovich do before he joined the Tenth Circuit? 
He's had a really interesting background. He is a third-generation Coloradan. He went to Colorado College. He went to the University of Colorado Law School. He clerked for Bill Erickson, who at the time was Chief Justice of the Colorado Supreme Court. Um, Judge Timkovich was in private practice in Denver and D.C. He was Solicitor General of the state of Colorado. So he had a background both in the practice of law and also in public interest service uh, before he went on the bench. He was nominated by President Bush this is the, seat, the second Bush. The second Bush and took a seat in 2003 on the Tenth Circuit. He ascended to chief judge of the Tenth Circuit, I think, just this fall. What's a decision Judge Timkovich has made that he's known for? So, again, this will be the I would bet you category of okay. decisions that will be called out. But it's the Hobby Lobby case, uh, which is the case in which the Tenth Circuit uh, found that for-profit corporations, closely held corporations, and that's a key distinction in the case, could assert religious freedom as persons under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and decline to provide contraceptive care if it was against their religious beliefs. And he found that they indeed they had, had the right that. to do that, mm-hmm. yes. And to Neil Gorsuch, who serves with Timkovich on the Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, what is Gorsuch's background? He also was born in Denver. Uh, He has some uh, sort of notable lineage in that regard. I don't know if you remember Anne Gorsuch Burford, who was the first female head of the Environmental Protection Agency. That is his mom. Neil grew up primarily in D.C. He went to Columbia, to Harvard. Uh, He did a stint in England. He, too, clerked for the United States Supreme Court. And then he went into private practice in D.C. and was deputy associate attorney general at the United States Department of Justice for a period of time in 2005 and 2006. He clerked for both, I think, Justices White and Kennedy on on the U.S. Supreme Court. He did indeed. And is an author as well. Yes. He has written a book recently on assisted suicide or euthanasia, which is very thoughtful and examines all of the ramifications, legal and moral. Is there a decision Gorsuch is known for, or that, as you say, (laughs) might be the lightning rod? I would suspect that um, a decision he wrote in a case that deals with the question of the extent to which the courts should appropriately defer to administrative agencies. This is an underlying case called the Chevron case, which established the notion that administrative agencies know better what they're doing in the enforcement and application of their regulations than the courts, and therefore the courts defer to administrative agency determinations. Judge Gorsuch suggests that that's a doctrine that needs to be revisited and perhaps overturned. And what kind of administrative entities are we talking about? Oh, it could be Bureau of Land Management, Mm. the Environmental Protection Agency, the Social Security Administration. Um, And this has been an issue that goes back to the current 
discussion about the power of the executive versus the power of the courts to review the executive because all of those administrative agencies are under the executive branch of government. Justice Corliss, I'd like to play a portion of an interview that the president-elect did with Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes. One of the things you're going to obviously get an opportunity to do is name someone to the Supreme Court. And I assume you'll do that quickly. Very important. During the campaign, you said that you would appoint justices who were against abortion rights. Will you appoint, are you looking to appoint a justice who wants to overturn Roe v. Wade? Look, here's what's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to put, I'm pro-life. The judges will be pro-life. They'll be... But what about overturning this Well, there are a couple of things. They'll be pro-life. They'll be, uh, in terms of uh, the whole gun situation, we know the Second Amendment, and everybody's talking about the Second Amendment, and they're trying to dice it up and change it. Uh, They're going to be very pro-Second Amendment. That sounds like a litmus test. How the country chooses judges is a major focus for your institute at DU. You have a quality judges initiative that offers guidance on how to choose impartial judges. What do you make of Trump's criterion for judicial selection? What we argue for at Isles is that the processes by which judges are selected should focus on impartiality, choosing people to come to the bench who are not going to apply their own personal ideology, but rather are going to review the facts, apply the law, and act like judges. So that is sort of the foundation from which I approach this question. And so you would not look at a judge's abortion stance and say that has any bearing necessarily on their impartiality, even if it's an abortion case that comes before the court. So ideally, a judge should not prejudge cases that come before the court. And all of us have watched Supreme Court nominee confirmation hearings, and we haven't heard what goes on behind closed doors, but even in those confirmation hearings, you can see how uncomfortable it is for the nominee to try to deal with those questions of how are you going to rule if a particular case comes before you, because you don't know how you're going to rule. And so better to ask questions that gauge their impartiality than their politics is what you're That's, saying. That is is my best case scenario. Okay. Now, I'm also a realist, and I recognize that when it comes to the United States Supreme Court, to some extent, all bets are off. Okay. Because replacing Justice Scalia, if one were to see that as an open spot, sort of an ideological gap on the court at present, then one would be looking for Mm. someone with a similar ideology. And I get that. I still hesitate to give up ground in terms of what the ultimate goal is. The ultimate goal is to find somebody who's really smart, really principled, who is collaborative, who comes to the job with an open mind and a willingness to work with colleagues and to really drill in on the cases that are before them. Okay. Impartiality, collaborative. Interesting. A lot of these decisions get written together, of course. And willing to do the hard work to really think through a particular case. What what does that mean? I would assume a judge would do that. Well, all of these cases 
by the time they get to the United States Supreme Court, they're very complex. And the court has both to decide the case before it and also think about the ramifications of that decision, how it will affect other cases, how it will affect other lines of precedent. So it is a process that involves very deep thinking and thinking that doesn't just remain within the four corners of that case. So if you were the president-elect, what, what, what is a question you'd ask? Or a member of the Senate? I would ask what the nominees believe to be the most important job of a judge. Hmm. What is the goal of the United States Supreme Court's role in our constitutional democracy, how should the court and the members of the court be perceived by the country? And my objective, and let it be known that I'm not making the decision, (laughs) just in case you were wondering, uh, nor am I endorsing anybody, but my objective would be to find someone who recognizes that the court is trusted and trustworthy only when it is perceived as acting within the bounds of the law and not acting as a policymaker. Thanks for sharing your thinking with us. Thank you. Rebecca Love Corliss directs the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System at the University of Denver. We talked about President-elect Trump's list of potential Supreme Court nominees. There are three Colorado judges on the list. Coming up, why did critical language in a government report on fracking and drinking water change at the last minute? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Unleash is the word President-elect Donald Trump uses when he talks about fossil fuels potential. Quoting from his energy plan, unleash America's $50 trillion in untapped shale, oil, and natural gas reserves. That would almost certainly mean more fracking. And if there's going to be more fracking, there will likely be more questions about whether the drilling process is safe, especially when it comes to drinking water. The Environmental Protection Agency basically said last year not to worry, finding, quote, no widespread systemic impacts. But an investigation by APM Reports and the public radio program Marketplace finds that language was a last-minute change to a fracking and drinking water study that was many years in the making. Scott Tong reports. The EPA study came as a divided America was telling itself two different stories about fracking. That is, shooting water underground to break up rock and release the oil and gas inside. One story is of innovation and energy abundance, fracking re-energizing the old energy economies in Texas and North Dakota and Pennsylvania. The other story is about the risk that fracking contaminates water supplies, leading New York and the U.S. and many other countries to ban fracking. Into this high-stakes debate came the EPA study, five years in the making, with an unexpected conclusion. Here's Deputy Assistant Administrator Tom Burke announcing those preliminary findings last year. Hydraulic fracturing activities in the United States are carried out in a way that has not led to widespread systemic impacts on drinking water resources. 
no widespread systemic impacts. According to the feds, there is no evidence fracking has had... Industry jumped on this positive conclusion. A finding suspicious of fracking would have been a huge roadblock. Instead, the oil and gas companies trumpeted the EPA's words, especially in states that are still debating fracking, including Maryland. The government has concluded that hydraulic fracturing or fracking does not do widespread harm to drinking water. Except Marketplace and APM reports have learned the controversial phrase was inserted very late in the process. We obtained several internal draft versions of the study's press release and its executive summary. That is the abridged version that most people, including most journalists, actually read. The documents were confirmed independently by people with knowledge of the study. The draft press release, just one day before going public, had a more cautionary tone. Its focus, quote, study shows potential vulnerabilities. But by the next day, the focus had changed to no widespread impact. In the executive summary, that phrase was put in with just five weeks to go in a five-year study. That was right around the time EPA and White House officials met to discuss messaging for the study, according to internal emails. So, who made the changes? I would highly doubt that the uh, groundwater scientists who were involved in a technical sense wrote that statement. Dominic DiGiulio is a former EPA research scientist. He says there's not enough data for such a blanket statement. Modern fracking is pretty new, and most data belong to companies that don't have to share it. We asked the EPA about the late edits. Tom Burke, who announced the study, agreed to an interview but then declined. EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy also didn't speak with us. The agency emailed a statement, which reads in part, EPA is working to finalize the assessment to be responsive to the comments received. The study's final version is still pending. Here's where we have to be very straight with you. Because EPA leaders did not talk to us, we don't know who made the late changes or why. We did speak to 13 current and former agency scientists with knowledge of the study. Some described the no widespread impacts line as head-scratching, surprising, and bizarre. Others are more critical, quote, irresponsible, and overreach. Either way, that line, again, no widespread systemic impacts, was called into question after its release by the EPA's own science advisors. Some called it a value statement instead of a scientific one. University of Iowa environmental scientist Peter Thorne chairs the advisory board. We suggested that they provide a definition of systemic, a definition of widespread, and then provide quantitative data to support the conclusion, to put that kind of scientific rigor behind a statement as broad as that. The advisors also said that the executive summary's top-line findings were inconsistent with the actual study. Earth system scientist Rob Jackson of Stanford, author of several fracking papers, calls it a mismatch. The headline, saying no widespread systemic influence, and yet a body of the report that documented a lot of cases of things that could have been done better. And now that mismatch makes a little bit more sense, to be quite frank, as we hear about the change in the message towards the end. To him, the late edit gave regulators what he calls political cover to go easy on industry. It's not Watergate, but it completely alters the take-home message of the report. It also raises lots of questions. Who influenced the final conclusions? Did they alter the content of the report in any way? We'll probably never know. And he wonders if this is connected to three EPA retreats from high-profile fracking contamination investigations in 2012 in Pennsylvania, Wyoming, and Texas. 
The EPA excluded data from those places in its study, but the agency advisors suggested it reconsider. What's clear is the EPA was called in to settle a long-standing dispute, and it appeared to vindicate and to absolve fracking, says longtime energy regulatory observer Kevin Book. His D.C. firm, Clearview Energy Partners, provides research to oil and gas investors. That's a big deal. That reinforces the sense that there's nothing to see here, folks. Move on. The idea that the EPA is above regional bias gives it an additional power to an EPA absolution of a technology. A technology that has swamped the U.S. with ultra-cheap natural gas that has put a number of coal and nuclear plants out of business. And it's helped to crash the global price of crude oil. There's a lot riding on North American fracking, and Washington knows it, says ex-EPA scientist Dominic DiGiulio. It's a very powerful industry, of course, and there's a lot of pressure that's put on EPA to not have findings that would cause financial harm to that industry. The wall between politics and science is not completely solid, you know, at times. And the next administration is even more overtly pro-oil and gas, notes Michael Halpern at the nonprofit Union of Concerned Scientists. We're really concerned that science that is critical to protecting public health and safety will be more vulnerable to suppression or spin. For all the questions about EPA messaging, here are a few things the study actually found. Fracking chemicals sloshing around in pits and transported by trucks can induce spill and leach into the ground. Some fracking goes straight into drinking water resources, which in some cases are actually mixed in with the oil and gas. And wells can be poorly constructed. About 3% of the time, the study found, wells lacked outer cement to protect aquifers from contamination. Now, here's where the science gets tricky. The overall pollution instances were low, which could suggest fracking is safe, or that there's not enough good data. Fundamentally, there aren't strong conclusions from this. George Gray is professor of risk assessment at George Washington University. He's former head of the EPA research office under President George W. Bush. We're not seeing a lot of problems, but then it could be because we're not looking closely enough. Right there, you know, choosing which one of those to focus on is going to put a different spin to the way that you look at that report. Again, the EPA study is not over. The final version could drop the line about no widespread systemic impacts after criticism from its own advisors. And that press release with a controversial line, it was removed from the fracking study's main website a couple months after it came out. One EPA media staffer said the release was bumped to the archives to accommodate a newer link. Another said the press release didn't get enough attention. In Washington, I'm Scott Tong. Scott reported that story with Tom Sheck of the investigative outlet APM Reports. And Tom is with us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Why, uh, what did this highly anticipated study of fracking and drinking water find in Colorado specifically? Well, um, I guess one of the things that we should point out is that the EPA kind of did two things here. They kind of did their own water samples. They tried to they tried to study some uh, water samples in terms of chemical concentrates. But then they also, what they did was take uh, data that was available from scientists and other state regulators. And primarily with this report, they found uh, they, they they took information from the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Committee or Commission, excuse me. Yep. And what they did was they 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 found some instances and they noted them in the report. In those findings, they noted uh, 
equipment and well integrity failures, uh, no, most notably in Garfield County, Colorado, and also in the Little Creek field. Those issues were mostly due to spill, resulted in spills, and then also methane leaks into wells. And I don't know if you've ever watched any of these uh, 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 documentaries on fracking, but a lot of times what they do is the most sensational video is when they light their water faucets on fire. And what you see there is a meth- methane leak that occurs into these wells, and that's what occurred there. They've also found spill data, and the Colorado Oil and Gas uh, Commission found that they, they, they found that these sp- the spill data resulted in 1.3 reported spills on a well pad near or uh, on the well pad itself of of every 100 spills. So they ended up using the state data to kind of uh, uh, say, hey, there are some issues here. And that's the remarkable thing here. If you read the report, it finds that there are issues in terms of water contamination across the country. And even in its own report, it says that. But at the same time, the massive conclusion said there was no widespread systemic impact. Right. When the EPA released this early version last year, here's how the Colorado Oil and Gas Association responded. This EPA report confirms what we have always known to be true, that hydraulic fracturing does not imperil or lead to widespread systemic impacts on drinking water resources. So square that with what you just told us. Um, What might it mean when Koga says... Hydraulic fracturing does not imperil drinking water. Well, this is where things get a little tricky because what we're interpreting from what that statement said is the process of hydraulic fracturing. When they shoot the uh, chemical mixture, which is water, sand, and chemicals into the ground to actually do the process of hydraulic fracturing, there aren't many instances, if there are any at all, that have found problems. But when you start to broaden it out a little bit, when you look at the well, the integrity of the wells, or you look at the spills that occur when the there's flowback from the chemical mixture, those types of things, uh, there there are problems. It's noted, it's clear from the EPA study. And so there's almost this, the environmental groups and the scientists sometimes are talking past the uh, industry because the industry is saying, well, hydraulic fracturing isn't causing this. But then the scientists and the environmentalists say, well, wait a second, though, there are ancillary effects that do occur, and those should be noted as well. I want to say that uh, the industry also said EPA has never found an instance of hydraulic fracturing contaminating groundwater in Colorado and for Colorado families. Well, this is where things also kind of get a little bit of an issue because the EPA has some oversight when it comes to uh, drinking water and clean water standards, but it's mostly the states that do this. And there have been several instances where the EPA has come in because there have been major issues or major complaints, uh, most notably Parker County, Texas, Pavilion, Wyoming, and also Dimmick, Pennsylvania. The EPA does come in and then the state regulators, the industry, and then Congress, Republican-controlled Congress, criticize the EPA for actually taking those steps to oversee things. And in those three instances, those three communities that I mentioned, the EPA abandoned those uh, investigations and in turn turned them over to the state regulators. Right, as your colleague Scott uh, just reported. It sounds like it was really hard to get an answer from the EPA on the last-minute language change. What kinds of pressure, political, economic, does the agency face, though? 
Well, they, it's clear when you we were going through and looking at this study that they faced pressure both inside and outside of the agency. On the outside, Congress requested this study in 2009, and that's when Democrats controlled Congress. So they were concerned primarily about the environment. That's typically how the, the parties have operated. Two years later, though, Republicans took control, and they've repeatedly pressed the EPA saying, you're being overbearing here. The states are in control. They're the ones who should be overseeing fracking. And at the same time, the EPA's budget was being dramatically cut. Between 2010 and 2016, the EPA's budget was reduced $2.1 billion, or about 20%. And at the same time, they're doing this massive five-year study, which costs $29 million. So there was internal pressure there. Externally, there was also pressure because of the oil and gas industry. The oil and gas industry promised that they were going to cooperate with the EPA and do these things called baseline testing. And what that meant was the EPA was going to be able to take water samples before a frack occurred, during fracking, and then also after to be able to say, hey, we're seeing that there are chemicals in the water or there are no chemicals at all. But those pledges of cooperation fell by the wayside, and the EPA never got a chance to do that. And that pressure is still kind of going on by the industry today. As Scott mentioned, what the industry is doing is they're really putting pressure on the EPA to keep that no widespread systemic language in there. And primarily, they want to do that because they're trying to push to expand fracking and and release the ban in New York and also in Maryland. And this is really important, not just because of the present day, but what we're seeing with President-elect Donald Trump coming in. He's saying he wants to deregulate fracking even more. If you couple that with budget cuts, you know, some groups are concerned that that the the process could be a bigger problem moving forward. And just to reiterate a point you made earlier, the question of whether fracking affects drinking water is as much a question of what you mean by fracking, whether it's that initial process or the ancillary things that happen afterwards uh, as anything. So this uh, report is not finalized, as you say. Uh, the question is, what language will remain? Um, what What's next in this process? Well, what's next is we're going to wait for the EPA to release their report. They're not, they haven't given us a specific date on when they're going to release it. Gina McCarthy was at the National Press Club earlier or last month, and she said that they plan on releasing it before the end of the year. And everybody's waiting to see whether or not that no widespread systemic uh, language is in there or whether or not they put some beef behind it. As you heard in Scott's report, some scientists say, hey, if you're going to say this language or use this language, make sure that at the same time you you define what this means so the public has it. And the stakes are high here. I mean, the oil and gas industry held a conference call earlier this month pushing the EPA to uh, you know, keep the language in because what that will be able to do is the oil and gas industry can go to other countries and say, well, our own EPA says that there's no problem. there are no problems here. Now, environmental groups are saying that this tougher language if it's taken or the phrase is taken out and there is tougher language in there, it'll give them the ability to go to the Colorado legislature, the North Dakota legislature, Texas, elsewhere and say, hey, we need some more oversight here as this process moves forward. So a lot riding on this. Very briefly, Tom, even if uh, l- the language is changed or kept uh, by the end of the Obama administration and that's finalized, it could then be rechanged under a Trump administration, couldn't it? Just Just briefly. I don't think the, the 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 science could be rechanged because the scientific report would be done. But uh-huh. what could be changed would be the approach. The Trump administration could just say, "Well, let's put this aside and move forward with what we think the 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 best alternative is in terms of energy exploration, etc." But the science, it would be really hard for them to go in and say, "Well, let's change up this report." Thanks for being with us. Thank you.
Tom Sheck is with APM Reports, a public media investigative outlet. He co-reported a story about the EPA's late changes to a fracking study, which downplayed the risk of polluted drinking water. Coming up, could school vouchers become a reality in Colorado under a Trump administration? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. School vouchers have fueled a decades-long debate. They allow families to use public dollars at private schools. President-elect Trump's pick to head the Department of Education, that's Michigan billionaire Betsy DeVos, is a big supporter of vouchers. Voucher plans have struggled to gain traction in Colorado. Last year, the state Supreme Court ruled a program in Douglas County unconstitutional. Education writer Nick Garcia lays out a steep but not impossible path for vouchers in a new piece. He's deputy bureau chief at Chalkbeat, Colorado. And Nick, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Briefly, why are vouchers such a hot-button issue? I think what makes vouchers so controversial is that it takes public money and very often is funneled to um, religious schools. We've seen that play out throughout uh, other states that have voucher programs. And in Colorado, we have a constitution in the constitution it forbids uh, schools from doing that. So we cannot send currently right now private uh, or public money to private schools. Okay. And not all private schools, of course, are religious. That's but true. The Venn diagram has a pretty big overlap. That's right. Uh-huh. During the campaign, Trump pledged to use $20 billion of existing federal money for a nationwide voucher program. Critical questions here. Would uh, he get the money from... <laughs> we don't know right okay, now. Okay. But one, one possibility is that he would take existing federal funds that are used for education, Title I funds, which are sent to schools that serve the most at-risk students, and allow those students to take that money with them okay. to whatever school they would want. That would be very, very, very controversial and unlikely, but that is one possibility. And he would have to have congressional support, would he not? That's right. So he would have to pass up. It would have to be part of the budget and or it would have to be part of some sort of new education legislation. And this is really the first sort of roadblock Trump's going to run into because the Congress already just rewrote our nation's education laws. Bipartisan. Bipartisan. And Barack Obama, President Obama signed it into law. And so most experts think that there's just not an appetite to go back to the public school system and refigure this out because they have so many other things to worry about, like health care. Uh, so as we said, Trump's pick for Education Secretary Betsy DeVos is all about vouchers. You write that she has financially backed politicians like Colorado Senator Cory Gardner who supports vouchers. That's correct. So he came out in favor of the Douglas County uh, voucher system program. He's voted to expand the uh, D.C. voucher program, which Congress uh, gets to appropriate. So, yes, he is uh, a big school choice voucher supporter. Okay, as is DeVos. So let's say Congress does act. So already you've said that that's a hurdle. Uh, You report that a voucher program would have to meet several requirements to work in Colorado. I suspect one has to do with this religious school question. So I think for it to work in Colorado, the lawyers I talked to, the experts I talked to, it would have to pass two tests. First, it would have to be completely voluntary for local school districts. Voluntary. Voluntary. So local school districts would have to opt in to do this because the state, being a local control state, cannot you know, dictate what schools do and how they use their money. Okay. And that flows from the state constitution, that notion of that's local correct. control? And uh-huh. that's actually one of the very first, uh, that was a, another ruling by the Supreme Court back in 2004 when Governor Owens tried to create a voucher program in the state. 
The second part would be no state funds would be allowed to be used in this program. That, again, is going back to the Douglas County uh, voucher decision by the uh, state Supreme Court last more, year. More recently, More right. recently. And it found that no state dollars can go? So only local funds? So no, 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 no. Only federal funds would be allowed to support this voucher program in Colorado. I see. So no local funds would be allowed to at do all. that at all. Okay. Is that... Uh, settled law? Not yet. So uh, proponents of the voucher program, the the school district, they have uh, appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. That case is currently pending. Um, There is another similar case out of Missouri that the Supreme Court is going to hear first, which could set precedent. Uh, And so the Douglas County voucher program is currently just in limbo, waiting for the U.S. Supreme Court to act upon it. My, there are lots of things about today's show that seem to be (laughs) converging. The Supreme Court's and education and the Trump administration. What could a a SCOTUS ruling on this mean? Well, I think that a a SCOTUS ruling, uh, if they were to rule that the state can use federal or state funds for uh, public private schools, rather, Mm -hmm. it would be nationwide precedent, because there are many, many other states, dozens, that have very similar constitutional provisions, like Colorado, that forbids public funds going to religious institutions. So if the Douglas County voucher uh, program was to be overturned at the Supreme Court level, it would have repercussions nationwide. Okay. But presumably still in place would be this idea that it couldn't be mandatory. That's right. Correct? That's absolutely right. Then you get to the question of whether... Even if state and local funds could be used for a voucher program, whether there's money for something yeah. like that. So one of the uh, points in Trump's plan, uh, a little wash again, this is all speculation, is that states might have to pony up some money themselves. And we're talking millions upon millions of dollars. And, you know, Colorado is already one of the states that funds education at a very, very low level. So it would be uh, a Herculean feat for lawmakers to come up with, you know, an extra $20 million to fund a voucher program here in the state. Okay. So I think the takeaway from your reporting, Nick Garcia, is that though the administration appears to want vouchers and is putting people in place who also want vouchers, it's it's not that overnight vouchers would be available. It's going to um, be years in the making. Uh-huh. Lots of things that interplay here. State constitutions, state rules, uh, obligatory versus non-obligatory, and so on. Yes. Okay. I suspect you'll continue to report on this. <laughs> we'll be all over it. Nick Garcia, Deputy Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat, Colorado. We talked about how a voucher program might roll out under the Trump administration. Coming up, Denver band The Lumineers get in the Christmas spirit. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Government spends tax dollars on works of art. That intersection between public money and art is a big focus for CPR's Corey Jones. He's been asking Coloradans to send in photos of public art around the state. He then corralled them and asked people to vote. Which piece would you like to know more about? Well, a mural in Denver got a strong response. So Corey went to check it out. Sunglasses. That's the first thing that stands out in a photo sent to us by Denver resident Julie North. The entire mural features 12 gigantic faces. Each wears a pair of shades that reflects Denver's history. It's called Confluent People, and it's a nod to nearby Confluence Park. That's where the South Platte River meets Cherry Creek. 
And this mural stops a lot of people, like John Johnson of Michigan, who takes a photo of it. Hey, man, it's Denver, man, you know, scenery. This is the artist. Hey, nice to meet you, sir. Yeah, pleased to meet you. How are you? Yeah, I like it. It's nice. Let me introduce you to this longtime Denver artist. Hello, my name is Emmanuel Martinez, and I'm a muralist. Martinez finished this piece in 2000, and he'll tell you right away he didn't do it alone. Fifty students from different high schools helped him. The collaborative aspect is the most significant because it engages uh, young people. The artist sees himself in a lot of these young people. Martinez was born in 1947. He was one of 12 kids from a poor family raised in Denver. You know, I had a very troubled youth. At 13, Martinez was caught joyriding with a friend who stole a car. He ended up in a juvenile detention center, a place he came in and out of for a couple years. And that's where Martinez says he discovered his talent. He went from simple drawings to a mural with cartoon figures painted inside a rec room. It just inevitably put me on the right track and get me out of trouble. And it was also something I could share with other people to try to make their lives better. Then along came an artist, Bill Longley. He was on the lookout for at-risk youth with artistic talent, and Martinez caught his eye. Longley made Martinez, who was then 15, a deal. He'd get him out of jail and into school if Martinez agreed to be his apprentice for two years. Martinez said yes. Longley later pushed him to get involved in the Chicano Civil Rights Movement, which Martinez did, but eventually he hit a roadblock. There was no place here in Denver or in the country that I could find where I could really learn anything about mural painting. So Martinez headed to Mexico, where artists like Diego Rivera and David Alfaro Siqueiros earned international acclaim for their large-scale works. I was very inspired by their movement and how they were able to help educate the masses through mural painting. Martinez says he returned in 1968 to pioneer contemporary Chicano murals in Denver. He got a job with the city so that he could paint a mural in La Alma Lincoln Park. I uh, took the easiest job as a a lifeguard here because I really wanted to paint that mural. He painted the mural and then started an arts and crafts program for kids in the neighborhood. Then Martinez founded the La Alma Rec Center. Eventually, he talked his way into a full-time painting gig with the city. And I'm probably the first and last muralist full-time muralist that the city of Denver has ever had. The city's approach to public art has evolved since then. There's now a formal program that commissions pieces, including murals, all over Denver. And yet Martinez's works still stand out. Many pull from Mexican imagery, like the mestizo head. Martinez says he wanted to share what he'd learned about his heritage. I went in search of someone who could put Martinez's work into perspective. Hi, my name is Lucha Martinez de Luna. Martinez de Luna is a Mesoamerican archaeologist from Denver. She wrote an essay for History Colorado called Chicano Murals in Colorado. Tell me how you're connected with Emmanuel, how how well you know him personally. Well, actually, I'm not sure if he told you, but I'm actually his daughter. He had not told me. You might expect Martinez de Luna to gush about her father's work, but instead she talked about the impact of growing up during the Chicano movement. Martinez de Luna says her father's paintings helped legitimize the Chicano community's sense of self-worth and identity. Our history was not readily available. It was not in school textbooks. It was not in museums. So basically, the art had to go to the communities. So when Martinez unveiled his finished murals, people showed up to see them. 
And it's that spirit of coming together that Martinez has worked to capture. That message comes through the mural Confluent People. Each face depicts a different race and gender to show those who have lived here over time. Martinez hopes people notice. We all share uh, you know, a presence in this country and that we ought to, ought to uh, maintain some harmony and equality. Martinez still creates murals. He travels around the country to paint with incarcerated youth, like his own mentor did for him many years ago. The work is part of a nonprofit called the Emanuel Project. Because, Martinez says, the most important aspect of his work will always be serving the community. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. You can see photos of the mural Confluent People at CPRnews.org. Coming up tomorrow on Colorado Matters, we meet a woman who feels a real connection to her North Denver neighborhood. Her name is Candy Sidabaka. I am the fourth generation in this house. This is my great-grandparents' home. Your great-grandparents? And you knew them? Yes. Do you remember coming to this house way back then? I do remember. I remember what it smelled like. I remember what it looked like. What did it smell like? It smelled like Bengay. Okay. They were older, I'm (laughs) guessing. Okay. It always had that menthol smell. So did you grow up in this house? I grew up in a combination of this house... The house next door and the triplex across the alley. So Debaka lives in Globeville, Swansea, and she says a plan to expand I-70 through the neighborhood is a violation of people's civil rights. More from her tomorrow and from the Colorado Department of Transportation. Tonight, the Hallmark Channel televises the lighting of the National Christmas Tree, and Denver band The Lumineers were a part of the ceremony, singing their new holiday cover, Blue Christmas. The folk rock group gave us a copy of the track to share with you. I have a blue Christmas without you I'll be so blue Decorations of red on a green Christmas tree won't mean a thing, dear. You're not here with me. I'll have a blue heartache for certain. Anything better than the voice cracking of Wesley Schultz? That is a new Christmas song from the Lumineers. Thanks for tuning into Colorado Matters today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. We are CPR News on Facebook. And you can always email us through the website. Click contact at the top of CPRnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner.